Good morning. So I'm really happy to be here to be preaching with y'all. This is, I was joking around with my wife Emily, this is the second year in a row that an illness has allowed me to go into the pulpit close to Easter. Um, Last year at our previous church, our assistant pastor at the time was the only pastor on staff. He got uh, appendicitis, and so I filled the pulpit. And hopefully this does not come up, become a pattern, uh, Pastor Jeff. But um, that being said, regardless of in God's providence, how I get to come up here and share his word with you, I'm thankful to be here. Uh, please pray with me as we dig into his word. Heavenly Father, we come to you and I thank you so much that you are good and you're gracious. I thank you that my brother Jake gets to be here, that we get to worship with him. And Lord, I pray that the words that you have given to us through your servants, Father, that they would ring true in our hearts, that we would recognize the beauty and the truth here, that we would recognize the cost of following your son, Jesus Christ. Father, let my words be true. Let me speak well. And let us glorify you today. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Now, when it comes to costs, people might be thinking, cost, that's all we think about. We're in inflation right now. Uh, so, of course, costs, we're, we're counting them very well. But a lot of times, though, at least with simple things, we can forget the costs. Uh, thinking about, you get on the tollway, you might be like, I just went a couple miles, not a big deal, that's a dollar. Um, one of the more mundane things, but more delightful things, where I think we don't recognize the cost until a little too late, is a wonderful place, I hope you all know this, the county fair. Okay, I know you have the state fair in Dallas, it's not the same. The county fair, uh, I grew up in a fairly small town, about an hour west of Lubbock and Amarillo. The county fair was an event. It was the biggest thing of the year. Uh, They couldn't start school until a week after the county fair. It was so big. And that's just how things were. There was a huge buildup for it. And while y'all might be excited for the state fair, it had no sway in the same way that the county fair did. For us, being able to go, it was just a spectacle. And when I went as a child, I didn't have to worry about any costs. I'd ride rides. I'd get a funnel cake. And man, I'm just having a blast on someone else's dime. Now, once I got into high school, I had to realize, oh, wait, it's $5 just to get in. Not to do anything, just to get in and maybe go look at some hogs, uh, maybe look at a cow. But I don't want to just look at hogs and a cow, no matter how great those are. I want to go ride some rides because why not go ride on some slightly rusty rides? We need to get a $20 wristband. And, well, I'm not going to just be there for a couple hours. I'm going to be there all night. I want to get some food. Uh, I might get like a hot dog or what are the other things, you know, the Texas fries or what have you, Uh, probably about 10 bucks, but I'm thirsty because it's hot. New Mexico gets hot in the summertime. Got to get a lemonade. That's like $8. And by the end of the night, we're at about 50, 60 bucks. And mind you, when I was in high school, I was making like 575 at minimum wage at the time. So I wasn't making great money. Uh, That was a lot of cost for me being able to go to the county fair to enjoy these things, uh, no matter how wonderful I thought it was, it was going to cost a lot. And to be frank, I think we get the same way with Christ, with following Christ, where we forget that these costs are immense. We're so focused on the beautiful benefits, the wonderful things that we get, that we don't think about those costs. 
Now, again, I think sometimes you're like, costs, uh, I've seen interest rates. I'm thinking about costs. But why do we think so deeply about those, but not about the costs of following Christ? There's a reason why Jesus talks about these things. He wants us to be aware of these is because we forget them. Now, there's three points that I want us to look at today as we're looking through these verses in the book of Mark in chapter 8. The first one is that Christ is Lord. You're thinking, well, duh, of course He's Lord. The second one, just as easy, we are not Lord. Simple, right? And the last one and the one I'm going to spend most of my time on is because you are not Lord, deny yourself. Now, within this immediate context of Mark, what we're seeing here is this is Jesus in the midst of His preaching, teaching, and healing ministry. And not everybody has really realized who is Jesus? Who is this guy? I'm not really sure. And so Jesus asks them, who do people say that I am? And I, I just almost am curious how Jesus asked that. Because with this, I think he knew people weren't getting it. They weren't understanding. And we see right here in verse 28, it says, and they told him, the disciples told him, John the Baptist, others said Elijah, others one of the prophets. In the same way, we see that quite a bit today, where we see a lot of people who, they know who Jesus is, they've heard his name. I mean, let's be honest, there's tons of churches up here. Even if we're in a post-Christian society, we see crosses everywhere. And yet, people don't know who Jesus truly is. If you go ask somebody on the street who Jesus is, they're probably going to give a different answer than what we might be looking for here in the church. Not the historical divine Jesus. They might say he was maybe a mythical figure like Zeus. Uh, he was just, you know, made up in people's minds. Cool story, but not more than that. Others, they might think he was a historical person, but more like a teacher like Sun Tzu or Plato. Uh, and try and take away from what he truly is. Now, he might have had lots of good things to say, but I don't have to commit to him in the same way I don't have to commit my life to Sun Tzu just because I read The Art of War. Now, with this, these conclusions may be rather different, but they're very much the same as what we're seeing these people falling to in Mark chapter 8, is they're missing the point of who Jesus is. They're thinking that they are a prophet, a created person, and yet Peter, he sums it up quickly when Jesus asks, who do you say that I am? And with this, Peter answers him and says, you are the Christ. With this, this is a profound statement, and I think sometimes we want to soften the edges. With this, Christ gets thrown around very simply because, well, it's just Jesus' last name in a lot of people's minds. Unfortunately, that's what a lot of people think. But to proclaim that He is the Christ is to proclaim that He is the Messiah. He is the promised one who is to come and save us from our sins. Now, with this, we want to soften things. We want to make things seem a little less intense than what they are. And with us, a lot of times, we want to hedge bets. In a postmodern society, we really see it a lot where we want to treat everybody like they are correct, like they are 
maybe on the right path and say, well, you know, oh, you believe that. Well, that's great for you. But this is what my truth is. My truth. Now, that ain't no truth. It's just your truth. And if you believe this, that Jesus is the Christ, this is a bold battle cry that He is the Lord of all, that He is the one who is to come and die and proclaim. Now, here's the tough thing with these people is they didn't necessarily recognize who Jesus was. They were looking for somebody different in the Messiah. So for Peter to proclaim, you're somebody who's been preaching and teaching and healing, and you're the Messiah when we've been looking for a king, a king who would conquer, that's bold. And with this declaration of who Jesus is, that he is the king, he is the promised Messiah, we also see a contrast, not in what Peter says, but in what is said to Peter, that he is not the Lord. Now, with this passage, this is actually one of the first predictions of Jesus' own death and resurrection in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, It's right after this proclamation that Peter gives. And let's go ahead and let's read this again. And it says, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. Now, if you got told this, this great and wonderful thing, what's going to be your first response? Most might be shocked. Might be, oh, well, that's big news. I had no clue. Peter, goodness. And I was telling my kids last night that Peter is actually one of my favorite folks in the New Testament because he, he's got that foot and mouth disease, honestly. Just like me where he says things and ends up realizing, oh, I shouldn't have said that. I got my... Got to put my foot in my mouth. If he was a quarterback on your favorite college team, uh, he might be, the adjective would be streaky. They might have good streaks of wonderful plays where, oh man, this guy's amazing. He might win the Heisman. And then the next couple plays you see and you're like, why does he have a scholarship? I don't understand. This is awful. I've got preschoolers who are better than this. And yet, Peter is very much like this. He can say something profound and glorious, proclaim that Jesus is Christ, And yet, the next sentence we says, he rebuked him. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Now, can you imagine the gall of taking aside Christ and rebuking him for making this proclamation? This is just wild to me, just thinking about this, that Peter would think, I just proclaimed that you were the king of all, and I'm just going to tell you what for. I'm going to show you that you don't know what you're saying, that you said the wrong thing right now, and I need to correct you. Now, reading one of our old reformers, John Calvin, he has an excellent view of this, where he said that Peter views it as absurd that the Son of God, who is to be the Redeemer of the nation, should be crucified by the elders, and that he who is the author of life, I have to remember, he was there at the beginning, should be condemned to die. He therefore endeavors to restrain Christ from exposing himself to death. Now, I think with Peter, and in much the same way where we want to take over and we want to be our own Lord, because let's be honest, Peter's trying to be his own Lord here. He wants to lord over the Messiah. He has 
some good intentions here. He doesn't want the person who he's been living with, who he's been learning from, to die a death. This is also not the type of Messiah he's probably been waiting for. He's been looking for a warrior king. He's been waiting for God incarnate to come. And just the thought of, well, he will die on a cross. He'll have to be raised again. That's not what I was expecting. There might have been some piety here in this but it was rooted in his desire to be the king of his own universe, to be his own Lord. Now with this, even then, we see that there is always going to be confusion amongst people when it comes to God's plans. In 1 Corinthians, we see that Paul stated, for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. Now, of course, we can see here that the cross was something that was a stumbling block for Peter. He wanted to do kind of what a lot of writers wanted to do in my childhood, where it was choose your own adventure. Anybody remember those books? Yeah. If you want to do this, turn to page 8. If you want to do this, turn to page 9. Do you want to be a knight or a rogue? Ooh, You get to pick, are you going to be good or evil? I don't know, the choice is up to you. And Peter, he had this same inclination where he wanted to be the master of the story. He wanted to make things happen and be the Lord of his life. And I think if we think about it daily, we become like Peter, where we say that, Lord, you've got a great plan. This is, it sounds really good, but I don't want it. I've got some better ideas. I'm going to fix this up. And in the same way, we see that we're rebuked for our foolishness. And it says here, that it says, But turning and seeing his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. We too focus so much on the things of man instead of the things of God. We think that we have this grand view of history, this grand view of everything that will happen, and yet we don't recognize what God's plans are. What does that mean for us then if we can't be the king of our lives, that we can't be the ones challenging and pushing forward our own destiny? This means that we must deny ourselves. Now, like I said, this is... No, we're like, you're really quick to your last point. We're going to be spending most of our time here. Now, we can tell that this meant a lot, this cost for the disciples to claim Jesus as Lord. Every day that we claim Jesus as Lord, we are turning away from other things. We're not in a pluralistic society where it's buffet and you choose and you pick and choose everything. People would like for us to be like that, but for us as followers of Christ... When we proclaim Christ as Lord, we are picking Him and Him only. In the same way where I married my wife, I chose her and her only, we follow Christ and Christ alone. Now revisiting these words, we see where it says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? 
For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Now, we have to remember that Christ hadn't died yet. This is foreshadowing. So they didn't fully understand the whole, take up your cross and follow me. For us, our minds go straight to, yes, we think of Christ carrying the cross up to Golgotha, him dying upon the cross, him raising again. For them, this was a little more abstract. That being said, the cross, torture, this was not something that was foreign to their minds. They were aware of what picking up your cross and carrying it meant. It meant following unto death. He wasn't talking about something foreign. The cross wasn't invented just for Christ. It was something being used. And yet, when you're told, follow Christ even unto death, who really thinks, man, that sounds great. That sounds so good. I know a lot of us very simply would be like, yeah, of course, sounds good. And yet, we think about our brothers and sisters in the world today who are enduring persecution, many of whom we support, many of whom we know, who actually have to follow Christ unto death because they fear for their lives. And we have to think, is this their own desire to actually follow after? Or is this sacrificing their own desires? Take of, taking upon the desires of Christ and taking up their cross and following after Him. Daily, we need to examine our motives behind why do you follow Christ? Are you following Him because it makes you look pious, it makes you look wonderful in the eyes of the world? Or is it because we truly want to follow Christ? We can often think, like I said, like Peter, that we are making decisions that look pious, they make us look wonderful, like we are wonderful God-fearers. And yet, underneath that veneer, we're manipulating things to try and make the world our own desire to live a life that glorifies us, not Christ. Daily, we should seek to mortify the sins of our heart, to be sure that when we are following after Christ, that we are doing so in such a way where we have turned away from ourselves, taken up that cross. Another one of the great writers, uh, John Owen, one of, it's one of the best quotes in history is, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Every day we must be killing our sin because if we don't, we cannot follow after Christ well. And denying ourselves, let's be honest, it's not fun. It's not something simple. It's not like if you tell me, hey, I just cooked you dinner, I made some broccoli. And I'm like, really hard to deny, guys. I don't, I'm okay if I don't have it uh, because I don't like broccoli. This is something that we want to have ourselves. We want to have what we want. We don't want to have to give up our ambition, our wealth, because it requires us to sin. It requires us to do things that maybe don't glorify the Lord. And I like to look at the example of the rich young ruler in Mark chapter 10. Uh, it's a little bit later in this. And he's a great example of someone who wanted to follow Christ, 
But man, that cost was just too much for him. As many of you know with this story, this is a young man who, he comes up to Jesus trying to show how great he is. He's trying to show his laurels. Hey, I look pretty good. I'm a good uh, follower of you. And he asks, what can I do to be justified? And he wants to know, okay, have you followed these laws? And he says, yes, teacher. All of these laws I have followed from my youth. And Jesus, he looked at him with compassion. And he, looking at him, loved him. And in the same way, we see Jesus often. He wants us to follow after him, and he loves us even when we don't have the right intentions in our heart. Because this young man, he's told, you lack one thing. Go and sell all that you have, give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. Now, if you know this story, and I'm sure many of you do, you know that this young man didn't go away, yes, I get to give away all my stuff. I get to sell everything, give it to the poor. Wonderful. Instead, it says that disheartened by this saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. We may not be people of many means, many possessions, I can tell you I'm not. And yet, you don't have to have lots of things to not want to sacrifice for the Lord, to not deny yourself for your Lord, to take up your cross and follow after Him. Radical self-denial is not something that our world indulges in very much. Instead, we think very deeply about what can I get at the moment? What can I get momentarily? Uh, I remember I lived in Europe for a couple years. Not continental Europe, but Europe. Uh, and I remember how long it took to get dinner there. Two, three hours minimum. And that's if it's going fast. And I remember when people would first get there and they would be so upset that they wouldn't get their meals within 10 minutes, 15 minutes. And we just had to explain to people, well, that's not how it is here. You're going to spend an hour eating a basket of bread and then you're going to eat dinner later. In the same way, we want the same automatic gratification. We want what we want, and we want it now. We don't want to have to deny ourselves for the hope of eternal glory. We instead want to give ourselves everything we want. Now, sometimes it's not even just that we're unwilling to sacrifice things. It's that we're ashamed of Christ. And I think when we look at Peter, likely part of why he was rebuking the Lord, was because he was ashamed for what he's saying to be said. Well, that doesn't sound very good. You're going to get killed. Well, you're the Lord. You're the Messiah. Well, how could this happen? Don't tell anybody this. They can't know. And the shame, I'll be honest, it wells up in many of us. I'll give an example from my teenage years of this, um, an interaction with my parents. Any parents had your teenagers be ashamed of you? Yeah. Sounds familiar. Teenagers, ever been ashamed of your parents? Um, I remember I played football in high school and, and in middle school. And in middle school, my folks were some of the only parents who would actually come to the games. I went to school in a very poor neighborhood, uh, so a lot of folks were working class. They weren't able to show up. But my parents came to almost every game. 
Now, here's the thing is, I played offensive line in middle school, and if you know anything about somebody playing offensive line, you don't want to be the center of attention. For those of you who don't watch football, if you notice that the guy blocking did something, it's usually because it's a bad thing. That's the only time. Now, it wasn't because I did a bad thing that I was getting noticed. It was instead, my dad was the loudest person on the sideline <laughs> every week, week in and week out. And it was not because he wasn't being vulgar. He wasn't yelling at refs or anything. It was just he was excited about good plays or angry about bad plays. And he was yelling and hollering and hooting. And when there's only a couple other parents up there, you're like, oh no, I'm the center of attention. And I remember going to my dad after one of the games and just telling him, why are you doing this? I don't understand. Can you stop? And what's funny is my friends all thought it was amazing. They thought it was great. They thought he was the coolest guy on the planet for it. I was ashamed. And I asked my dad, hey, stop it. Cut it out. And I don't think he'd admit it. I don't think he would, but I think it hurt his feelings that I told him this. Uh, because he, he definitely quit. And he was very quiet during games in every which way. This is a silly thing, but we can often be like this with Christ, where something as small as encouragement, we can turn away from Him and hope, wow, oh, I want my own way. I'm ashamed. You're making me look bad. You're saying, I have to do this to follow you. I have to hold to these beliefs to follow you. I don't know, man, that's going to make me look bad. I'm not sure I can do this. And even with this, even when we live in a time where it's not in vogue to be a believer, there's not as much help in being a follower of Christ as there used to be. We still need to fight that shame that shame of following Christ, of being named amongst those who follow after Jesus. We should proudly proclaim that we are followers of Christ daily, even while recounting the costs, even recognizing that, yes, we may have people who look at us funny, that may not understand why we follow a risen Savior. They may hate that we follow Christ. There have been plenty of people who hated followers of Christ throughout the centuries. And yet, we should be more concerned about what Christ said about us. It says, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed of when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Man, if that doesn't put a weight on you, knowing that Christ will be ashamed of you if you show shame for Him. And that's understandable. If we don't want to proclaim our fidelity to Christ, our love for Christ, why should we expect that He will love us as well? We can be so like those in Israel daily who run after their false gods, getting caught in spiritual adultery, and I think where he says that we're in this adulterous and sinful generation, uh, this really fits so well of our current time, where this adultery is spiritual adultery. 
we're so caught up in other things that pull us away from Jesus. Pulls us away from our desire to follow after Him because, again, we want to be the kings of our own faith. We want to pull in other doctrines that make maybe this hard truth that we must deny ourselves maybe a little more palatable. Oh, well, I have to tell other people that their faith is not true because they don't follow Christ, that they reject Him as the only Lord. Well, we can't turn to that spiritual adultery. We must turn to Christ. This would be much like in Matthew where we see where he was talking about those who were never truly followers saying, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Our love and devotion requires immense devotion to our King Jesus. It requires that we do lay down our life. And much like that teenager at the county fair or state fair, because the state fair is pretty dang expensive too, we need to recognize that this cost is so much more immense than we could imagine and be okay with that. Be okay with the fact that what we gain in following Christ is greater than anything that we could get from this world. That what this world has to offer pales in comparison. And as we look in conclusion, we need to consider the costs. Our life needs to be devoted to Christ. We should proclaim Christ daily as our King. This shouldn't be something that surprises people around you, that Christ is your King. And it shouldn't be a surprise when you deny yourself of worldly pleasures, of the ability to make up your own beliefs, your own ethics, just because you want to. We should again be just like the man who marries one wife and is given up the ability to seek another. We are joined with Christ. We all are the bride of Christ and we are joined with Him. We don't have the ability to seek after other kings, other lords. We are not the Lord. We seek out the one King, Jesus Christ. And we must repent of our desire to be our own Lord. Just as Peter was told that he must get behind him because he's thinking of the things of man, we too must recognize when we're thinking about the things of man. Are you seeking after the things of this world? Are you thinking after seeking after the things of Christ. Daily we must examine those things. As we come to the table and take communion together, those are things that we must consider is, are we following Christ with our heart, soul, strength, and mind? Or are we instead turning to an adulterous life? Are we saying with our mouths that we love Jesus, that we will follow Him, that we will deny everything but our actions say otherwise. Our actions show that we are ashamed of Jesus, that we want nothing to do with Him. Let it not be so. If that is your case, that you are living that spiritually adulterous life, I would commend you, do not live such a life anymore. Turn away from that. Recognize that falling after Christ, yes, that is scary. It means life unto death. And yet there is 
peace in Christ and Christ alone that we can get from nothing else. As Jesus' words, as he says, whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. The loss of our life doesn't mean that we lose ultimately. It means that we gain everything. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, I come before you and Lord, remind us of the sacrifice that we must give in parallel to your son Jesus. Your son Jesus gave up his life for our sakes. And yet, we often do not desire to give up our life for your sake. Lord, remind us of that cost daily. Let us follow after you and let us love you and you alone. Let us love no one else but you. Father, prepare our hearts as we come before you at the table. Bless us with these, th- these elements. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.